We acknowledge and pay our respects to the Ghana people, the traditional custodians whose ancestral lands we've recorded this podcast on. We acknowledge the deep feelings of attachment and the relationship of the Ghana people to country, and we respect and value their past, present and ongoing connection to the land and cultural beliefs. Hello and welcome to Leveling Up, your leadership podcast. My name is Ali Clark and I'll be your host as we unpack the leadership journey brought to you by Professional and Continuing Education at the University of Adelaide. The podcast will bring you all the tools, tips and insights to help you unlock your leadership potential and get the most from your team. We'll be talking to South Australian leaders from all walks of life as they share their leadership stories and we'll support your lifelong learning with the latest leadership thinking and advice from the university facilitators to provide the essential guide to levelling up your leadership. Well, today I'm speaking with someone who found himself leading through what has arguably been the most significant period of uncertainty of our time. He's had one of the toughest jobs of the pandemic in steering South Australia's COVID response and making decisions that affected our lives and livelihoods. And he's someone that many look to for calm and reason. I'm talking about the South Australian Police Commissioner Grant Stevens, an alumni of the university's transformative leadership program. Commissioner Grant Stevens, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for letting me have a chat. Oh, I suppose this is habit for you and I. I always say good morning, but this is any time we're on a podcast Oh, that's now. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what does Jim Carrey say? Good morning, good evening, good night. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'll start with the same question we start all the time, is what do you think it means to be a leader? Um, what does it mean to be a leader? I think um, there's probably a couple of components that I'll jump straight to. I think leaders need to set a direction. You need to ensure people understand what their role is, what their job is, how they contribute to that direction. And then you need to provide the environment that lets them do their job. So that'd be three that I go to straight away. Um, Equally as important. Where does emotion come into that, if at all? Or do you police officers train the emotion (laughs) out of yourselves? No, I don't think you could be a good police officer without having empathy and emotion. Um, that sometimes presents a challenge when you're dealing with difficult things. But I think it uh, it's the human element that is inherent in a, a good police officer. As a, as a leader, I think you need to have a strong connection with the people that you are responsible for. And I think they have to see that you are genuinely interested in their welfare and, and the work that they do and that you support them by providing a sense of purpose. Why did you want to be a police officer? And was that what you wanted to do right from the get-go? No. No, I, uh, I, I never had any aspirations to be a police officer. And What did you think you were going to do? Uh, to be honest, um, I lacked direction during high school and probably immediately after high school. And while I was at school, I was working part-time at a shopping centre and they employed me straight away after school and I was just curious as to what my options might be so I, I took some time off one day and the first place I went was the police recruiting and I happened to walk in just as they were trying to fill a cadet course that was starting in January. So I think I walked in late November, early December and in a very short space of time they pushed me through the selection process, offered me a position on that January cadet course and as they say, the rest is history. What drew you though to go to the police Recruitment office at all? Was it well, just because it was there? Was it? I uh, 
and it was as a result of my lack of application. But gosh, I'm, yeah. I would die to see your year nine report cards. I, I could, I can actually show you all of my uh, high school report cards. Um, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a hoarder, but I, I do have a sentimental connection to certain things. Yeah. And every single report says could do better, should sit up the front, should too sociable, <laughs> yeah, good, you know, friendly student, but needs to work harder. All, all of those things. I, I did what I needed to do, and I think that was because there was no sense of ambition or no specific goal that I had in terms of what I wanted to be when I left school. Mm. So yeah, going into the police, it was I, I didn't see uh, the, the reason for the issue around uh, numbers was going into banking didn't seem to be the right thing and I think this was at the tail end of those days when you left school, you, you went into the army or the banks or mm-hmm. these core yeah. sort of occupations. So I was thinking about the Defence Force or the police service yeah, and I just happened to go to the police first. And did you get that sense of purpose immediately because of the way they, I don't want to use the word indoctrinate, but did they bring you in under this very tight, strict, here are the levels, here is where you can go and here's what we're doing? Um, I I think the sense of purpose uh, came pretty quickly. I I think I speak on behalf of a lot of people who went through the academy when I did. We did a two-year course um, and we had a, you know, it's not an understatement to say we had a fantastic time. We were living together, a group of 28 people. Um, we became close friends. Um, and the study aspects to what they were um, requiring us to do were directly related to what you were going to be when you graduated. So there was a connection there to why you were doing all of the study, the exams, mm-hmm. the tests. Mm. Yeah, so it all sort of fell together and all of a sudden – those comments about could do better didn't necessarily appear. So so when you say that it didn't necessarily appear, were you really proud? Did that give you a sense of pride in something that you've achieved and gone out to get that you maybe never had before? Um, I don't think I analysed it that much back then. Like graduation day was, you know, I think every graduating cadet feels immensely proud of what they've achieved on, on the parade ground on that day when, you know, you're sworn in as a police officer. So, yeah. I have very fond memories of that, uh, but I don't think I analysed it too much in mm. terms of having found that sense of purpose. Mm. And if I'm honest, even back then, my goal was to be a police officer and you know, on graduating, that's when it became a reality. Uh, I didn't have a specific plan then uh, in December 1983 that I was going to be the Commissioner of Police. Yeah, that didn't okay. That didn't come for that a very long it. time after. So that sense of purpose and I guess you know, helping people, serving people, looking after people is probably a large part of policing that yeah. maybe isn't front of mind for a lot of people when we see somebody with, you know, all dressed up with the guns and everything. It's more law and order, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of our core functions is providing assistance to people in times of crisis. And crisis can take many guises. It can be someone who's being assaulted. It can be someone who's the victim of domestic violence. Uh, but it can be someone who's having a mental health episode and invariably the police are the first on scene. So, you know, we we do support people within the community in a range of different ways and it's not just the old cops and robbers thing. It's not Mm. what you see on TV. There's There's a much deeper element to being a police officer and connection with the community. Do you think police officers get a bad rap? Uh, No, I think... uh, Well, we take a great deal of pride in our standing within the community and it's a national survey that's conducted to assess just how police services are regarded by their community. And I'm very proud to say that South Australia Police 
are always within the top one or two of all Australian police jurisdictions. So I don't think we do get a bad rap. I think the vast majority of people within the community trust and respect the South Australian police. And you try not to have the minority as your frame of reference mm. because I don't think that truly represents how our community regards us. You do know where journos always fall on that scale of trust. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's what sells papers. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, take me to the most difficult policing situation you've been in, if you can. Um, <clears throat> yeah, probably um, I, I spent a lot of my career as a detective and I, I never really – enjoyed investigating child sexual abuse. Um, I found that really personally challenging, um, the heartbreaking stories of the victims and the the repulsive actions of the offenders. It was was good to be able to take action on behalf of those victims. But back in uh, um, the early 2000s, about 2003, I was given the job of setting up a or doing an assessment of historical child sexual abuse uh, in institutions that provided services to children and that turned into a a task force, the pedophile task force. Fairly confronting stuff. Um, You know, in the early stages I was quite um, heavily involved in some of the frontline investigation stuff. I was managing the task force but you couldn't avoid or ignore the stories that we would hear from uh, adults, men, who had been sexually abused and, and dealing with the consequences of that abuse for decades um, coming forward as a result of our ability to investigate their claims, um, very challenging. And that cascaded into me becoming the the officer in charge of a newly formed sexual crimes investigation branch, which included child exploitation investigations of current children who were being sexually abused and some of the child abuse images that... um, you, you you're exposed to you just you can't unsee and so how do you deal with that? Um, I don't know to be honest with you. Like we have mechanisms in, in in place to support people who work in those environments, and we did then. Um, it's one of those things you don't forget, but I I don't feel like I've been adversely affected by yeah. that type of work. Um, and and maybe I'm lucky. Maybe I'm. I think we're all different and we have different triggers that cause us to um, have an adverse reaction to experiences. But I just seem to have been able to process it in my own way. And um, as much as I still remember those things, I don't feel like they're really having a, a negative impact on me. Probably gives me a, a a stronger sense of motivation to make sure we're doing as much as we can mm-hmm. to support people, to be there for people who are in that situation. That's you being able to process it. I can only imagine how hard it would be for your wife or people around you close to know that that's what you're doing and going through. But yeah. I imagine you're keeping that very close to your chest. Yeah, you've got to be careful what you yeah, share. That's and right. I, I feel incredibly well supported by my family. My wife, um, the kids don't realise they're supporting you when they're being kids, you know, <laughs> annoying the hell out of you and constant demands. But that's, that's the sort of healthy distraction you need. But, uh, you know, there were times when. You know, I've I've been alone with my children in a park or something, and you know, this is the you, you can't help but think of the sinister side, and other people might be looking at you as though you're one of those people that you've had exposure to in your professional working life, um, and looking at young children as a father um, with that probably irrational concern that 
of the risk they might be exposed to. I think we all worry about our children being taken from the street or being the victim of sexual abuse. It's incredibly rare, but it does happen, and you've got to try and maintain that balance. And when you've been exposed to some of the things that can happen to young children... I don't know how you don't wrap them up in bubble wrap completely. Well, you're not doing any favours. It's it's finding that balance. When did you first think of yourself as a leader, do you think? Um, There were days... um, So as as a brief summary of my career, started on patrols like everybody else did, moved into the CIB, spent time as a... Detective, Sorry, criminal investigation branch yep. in the in the suburbs, and um, moved from the CIB into uh, the specialist crime areas, predominantly drug investigations. And I think it was during my time in the drug investigation area as a specialist that you start to see there's a a stronger uh, leadership role that goes with that because you're working with local CIB detectives, uh, and I, I became heavily involved in providing drug investigation training to patrols and other areas. So that sort of leadership role comes out of your specialisation and your ability to support other people. And that is then more that people management of others, is that...? Yeah, ma- yeah managing, uh, enabling. Yep. Um, but I talk at graduation parades and when we swear our new police officers in and I talk about the fact that uh, as soon as you put on a uniform and you step into the community people look at you as a leader, they see you as a leader and I try and encourage them to think about that because I don't know that I ever really turn my mind to it but that's the that's the truth of the situation. No, yeah, no, right. no matter how young you are, once you put on the uniform, you step into, you're there for people and you're going to be called to dangerous situations, um, complex situations that need some decision making, that's, that's leadership. Mm. So people come to us because they need problems or they have problems that they need our assistance with. Um, yeah, the, the newest police officer is a leader within the community, and the community look at them as leaders. You're absolutely right. Whenever mm. you know, because that is the person that we will go to if anything, yeah. you know, we need yeah. help or it goes pear shaped or whatever it might That's be. That's right. When you need help, yeah. you call police. Yeah, a lot of pressure for a new person coming out in those first instances. Yeah, and I reflect back on my first day and. You know, we did lots of training exercises in the academy and scenarios and um, assessments and it's, you know, you, you take it seriously and you, you do as well as you can but it's a very different thing on day one when it's no longer, you know, in the safe environment of the police academy. You're in a patrol car with a partner and you're being tasked jobs. Were you nervous? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 Didn't um, get much sleep the <clears> night before? No, not <laughs> at all. Um, and it's um, clearly didn't know the, the phrase back then but... Yeah, a serious dose of imposter syndrome <laughs> <laughs> on day one. Yeah, you because know, I was only, uh, I think I was twenty, yeah. and you know, it's, if if I had an awareness of just how much I didn't know back then, I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How, Des- despite all of the training. How far into it did you get before you actually felt like you belonged or you comfortable? Uh, or, it happens. Yeah, yeah, it happens pretty quickly okay. um, because you know, the training is excellent. Uh, it's far more refined now than it was when I went through. Um, but I do think we equip our people really well to do the job that, that they're being sent out to do. And, you know, it's that initial apprehension. It's the first time you do things is always, you know, a degree of trepidation, but it becomes easier after that. You're working amongst a team of people who you get to know very quickly and you know they're there to support you. So it, you hit your stride pretty quickly, I think. It's the same as anyone who steps into a new job. You know, you you fake it till you, you make, make it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you spoke about and we, you know, spoke about the obvious emotion and dealing with that when you're dealing with horrible things that you've seen. What about the emotion of anger, the emotion of frustration? I have seen police people do their work and in my head I would be thinking, I just want to snot that person. How de-, You know, mm. it's hard not to want to actually react in a guttural way. How hard is it to deal with that emotion? Um, that's a challenge for police officers um, and it's one that we expect them to manage. Um, we talk about professionalism. And we do see sometimes that yeah. some people, some officers can't. Or, oh, ab- absolutely, yeah. and there are consequences for that, for those police officers. Obviously it has an impact on the organisation because it, in, in this era those sorts of things are invariably captured and loaded to yep, you know, Facebook, YouTube, um, Instagram. So the actions of one police officer who doesn't, exercise that self-control can have a significant impact on the way our community thinks about us. So you know, we, we do push this message very hard. It's a, it's a big part of our training and our expectation is people act with professionalism even in those really challenging circumstances. It's, it's not negotiable. It's, um, well, if mm-hmm. you just look at it from a self-preservation point of view, if you don't control yourself and you lash out, then you could be subject to criminal charges or disciplinary charges. And, you know, I don't want that to happen to people. I want them to, you know, enjoy their careers and get the most out of it. But that's all well and good and you know all that. Um, But how did you or did you ever have to find ways to deal with it once you took the uniform off? I would imagine, for example, even the frustrations of maybe thinking that you've done incredible police Mm. work and perhaps that hasn't played out in the courts and you see this person go free that you know for a fact whatever might happen. Been there, done that. Right. Yep. So how do you deal with getting that out of your system? Is it a physical thing for you with exercise? Is it an analytical thing? It's not something I've really personally examined or analysed in terms of how I deal with it. And I'm like every other detective out there. I've had cases where you put it before the courts and there's a, an acquittal or a, the, the DPP uh, decides not to prosecute. Yeah. Um, my rationalisation process and what I say to other police officers is, yeah, you have every right to be frustrated, but if you can stand back and through an assessment process be satisfied that you did everything you should have done, then you let it go because it's part of a bigger system. You know, this, the system is designed to ensure you know, innocent people don't end up wrongly accused or in custody and you know, there are gaps in that process. So be confident you did your best and it wasn't because of any shortcomings on your part and then move on. There are plenty more out there that we need to focus on. Wowee. You said that you first came to thinking or getting into a leadership role or seeing yourself in that leadership role when you were um, working with the drug task force Mm -hmm. and everything else. What were some of the earliest challenges you had when you were in a leadership role? Um, Credibility, I think, because I sort of came through my time as a patrol officer and detective was in an era of policing when promotions were seniority based. So mm. time served got mm. you the next promotion. Next so in the minds of a lot of people around me, I was probably quite young when I started to um, step into those formal leadership positions because it was a changing of the way we did things. It was a merit-based selection process. I had the audacity to put my hand up, apply for some jobs and I was successful in winning them. So in the minds of a lot of people around me, I would have been seen as 
an upstart. Yeah, you hadn't you done know, your time. Not waiting my time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think things changed pretty quickly after that. Mm-hmm. And having a, I don't know that I have it anymore, but a relatively young-looking face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, yeah, as much as we liked that, it was probably one of those things that created that sort of perception amongst others that you know, I should have waited longer. But I wasn't different to a lot of other people back then. Yeah, and people s- of my era. So was it just simply then a matter of runs on the board as such and doing a good job? That was the only way that you beat that aspect of it? Or was it more just about self-belief then and just going, well, I'm not going to care what you think, I'm just going to get on and support the people around me? Self-belief but also managing managing up, I suppose. Um, Appreciating people's perceptions and not being seen to be too arrogant and demonstrating your capability by getting the job done and... You know, I think also a willingness to, you know, learn from those people, you know, notwithstanding how they might have achieved the the positions they had, they had experience and you learn something from everyone. So, you know, I think that willingness to engage and talk to people mm. breaks down some of the barriers. When did you first think about becoming the big cheese, the big enchilada, the commissioner of South Australian Police? Uh, the first time I seriously contemplated that as a possibility was um, – just after I'd been appointed as the Deputy Commissioner in October 2012. And had you always looked up and kept wanting to get to that next level or was it a case of changing what you saw as the best way you could serve the police, i.e. someone's finished on patrol, I can think I can actually add more value to them if I'm a detective, then if I'm a detective I can then move up into another yeah. role and help more. It was probably a bit more selfish than how I could look after the or serve the police better. It was yeah. what I was interested in. There was no plan for Grant Stevens written on a piece of paper that said, I'm going to do this, this, this and this. It was more organic than that. I started off on patrols. Um, the aspect of patrol work that I liked was the, the investigation side, so I found myself on the, um, the investigators course. Uh, I joined the CIB. I had an inclination towards drug investigations, so I found myself in the drug squad. When I was doing that, I spent about a year or so in the drug squad after having worked on the teams, assisting to coordinate the um, mm-hmm. the drug investigation branch mm-hmm. um, because the the senior sergeant who had that job took about 18 months off prior to retirement and none of the other sergeants wanted to go into that sort of coordination administration area. So I said, as a senior constable, I said, well, I'll do that. So if you enjoy what you do, I, I really believe that, you know, opportunities present in front of you and, you know, you just have to have the courage to take that next step. So I, it was never anything that was sort of a manufactured yep. progression. Yeah. It was just following following the things that interested me, enjoying what I did, doing them well because you enjoy them is easy and then see what comes next. When you were Deputy Commissioner, did that prepare you well enough to be the Commissioner? I thought it did. Um <laughs> And I worked very closely with the previous commissioner, Gary Burns, and Gary um, from the outset said he was only doing the role as commissioner for three years. So I was his deputy for that three-year period and Gary was very supportive in um, including me in a lot of the things that he would do as commissioner, um, engaging me in discussions about some of the strategic challenges we had, some of the operational issues, and I would represent Gary at different government uh, mm-hmm. committees, board meetings, all those sorts of things. So there was a lot of preparation there for me and I was appointed as commissioner on Gary's retirement and I thought I was ready for the job up until the day I sat in the chair 
And it's mm. only when you actually take ownership, you realise the magnitude of the job and the responsibilities that go with it that you never have until you own the job. You know, even as an acting commissioner when Gary was away, it still wasn't the you, same. You, you're you're keeping the seat warm for the owner, mm. and there's a lot of decisions and a lot of discussions that happen with the commissioner or the chief executive and you know, other stakeholders that you don't have a true appreciation for until you're in the chair. So, yeah, I was started again once again, faking it. I was about it. to say, so the nerves of when you first day of patrol, nerves first day yeah. as commissioner. I think the difference is um, on patrol uh, there's an expectation that you're, you're still developing. You know, we have probationary periods where we continue to support. We have um, workbooks so people can, you know, we can mm. assess people's development in their new roles. As commissioner... Uh, it's day one. There's there's no induction book. I looked everywhere. I couldn't <laughs> find it. Um, you're on your own and uh, you have to have some self-belief and confidence to actually to step into that and start doing it. So how long were you the Commissioner of Police before COVID came along? Uh, I was appointed as Commissioner in July 2015 and, and then COVID came along in years. March yeah. 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So COVID comes along. All of a sudden you're doing a job nothing like anyone has ever had to do before, no. really. Just explain the difference and what happened and what the change was a day-to-day for you. I mean, you and I became very close. We interviewed yep. us, but I got to yep. interview you every single day, it seemed, um, yep. back then. But just explain the difference of what your role became. It, w- it wasn't the first occasion that uh, I'd had to um, undertake the responsibilities that come with being the state coordinator, which is what the commissioner of police is. Um, I've done it prior to COVID. Uh, we'd had bushfires. Yeah. Uh, we'd had a flood event. We had the system black in 2016 where the whole state lost its power. So there was no uncertainty about my role as the state coordinator. Very different scenario, though, with a pandemic. Uh, we had never contemplated that we'd done exercises, but it's one of those things where you go to your um, your strengths and what you expect to uh, to confront, and that is the traditional major emergency type scenario. And we applied the same practices and principles with the pandemic, but very quickly the magnitude of what we were going to have to do really struck home. You know, if you think about a bushfire, we might um, cordon off uh, a geographic location the size of a small community. We might evacuate. Uh, certain regional locations because of the bushfire risk. You're deploying assets to one small part of the state. Um, and I would imagine too, you know, people have done the, a bushfire, a flood or something yeah. before, so you would have in your head a pretty good idea yeah, of how things yeah. are going to roll there was out. A, there was a cadence that jumped in pretty quickly right. because... Yeah. Here's the process that yeah, we know works. We know we know how to deal with that and... Uh, you know what questions to ask. Uh, you know the you know all of the key contacts in the control agency. So if it's a bushfire, it's the CFS. We're in a scenario now where it's escalating incredibly quickly, and we're building relationships with SA Health. We're we're trying to assess their their capabilities in the emergency management space. So we have to support them, and then we start talking about widespread restrictions uh, that are going to impact on every single every single South Australian and every square inch of the state. It was. Yeah, it's a bit of a holy shit moment. Well, and you're doing it while the rest of the country, the rest of the world's working their way yeah. through this too. Yeah, um, and we were watching what was happening overseas and the forecasts um, and predictions we were getting from SA Health were quite dire mm. in terms of the, the number of South Australians that might be 
affected by COVID and you know, the potential mortality rate as a result of COVID. They, they, they were pretty stark numbers. And this is just at the, about the same time we're seeing uh, you know, people in you know, mass graves in the Northern US, Italy in the Northern US, Italy, yeah. people being turned away from hospital because they're over 60 and there's no capacity to, to assist them. You know, there were real alarm bells there that I think a lot of people have forgotten about. When we reflect on our COVID response, we think about it in the context of today when mm. you know, we, we're, we're all becoming quite socialised with COVID being a part of our community. Back then it was, uh, you know, there's a lot more fear within the community. So, And, and in, in part, that's why I think the community was so responsive to the steps we had to take. We speak about taking the emotion and being able to find a way or deal with the emotion in policing. How did you deal with fear and were you ever fearful when you're sitting there watching this, being on the inside of some discussions that most of us would never even know have gone on, and then going home to a family who mm. would have been wanting to know, what, what do we do, where do we go on a personal level? That's that's a really good question. And one of the things I, I remember thinking about is, and this, this came up as a result of the System Black event where we lost power in 2016, one of the recommendations coming out of the review was that we should all be a bit more resilient. And I do remember thinking, no one paid attention to that. Like, yeah. We saw toilet paper disappearing from yeah. the shelves. Yeah. Yeah. Not that you want to fill your cupboard full of toilet paper, but you know, what, what capability do we have to last more than 12 or 24 hours in our homes anymore? Like, we've all gone to this just-in-time process where no. you, you buy tonight's dinner on the way home from work or someone goes out and... And worst comes to worst, we'll get a Uber in. That's right, right. Yeah. yeah. So when all of those things stop... Um, you know, resilience becomes a big issue. And I, I did think about that and not that I got to the point of panic buying, but uh, I did think about what, what should we really be doing to ensure that we can be self-sufficient for five to seven days. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking about that. And in terms of family, in those early stages of COVID, um, it was 16 to 18 hours a day, um, seven days a week. I'd get home when I could and the conversations would still continue. There'd be teams, meetings, telephone calls. So I don't think there were too many secrets in my house about <laughs> uh, what we were dealing with. It was just, it was impossible, impossible to, not, to yeah. sort of um, quarantine, forgive the pun, my family from what I was doing. And I suppose in some respects that helped me manage the process of being the state coordinator in that situation because my wife and my kids knew what we were dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, you know, well, the the fear element. I, I don't know that I necessarily shared some of the forecasts and predictions, but in terms of the daily response activities that we're engaged in and deploying people, you know, resolving challenges and issues. You know, yeah, they they had a pretty good understanding of what I was doing. So, did it make it any easier when you went home and told your beautiful daughter that you were about to put <laughs> the entire state on lockdown and her wedding was cancelled? Oh, I did that twice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the second time we'd had the discussion at work, and I. Uh, I was doing a radio interview as as I was doing quite regularly and the question was asked about um, the limitation on, on gatherings and I said, well, it comes into effect on such and such a date, which means my daughter's wedding has yeah. been cancelled. My son-in-law was listening and he rang my daughter and he said, do you know our wedding's been cancelled? So <laughs> I got the communication loop wrong on that occasion. Maybe that yeah. one. Yeah, maybe that one. But he, it, the, the good news was it happened on the day it was always scheduled for because the, the, the gathering numbers were lifted and we could have the wedding. So, yeah, I'm off the hook on that one. Just. <laughs> in those, in the last two to three years during COVID, and you mentioned that obviously all of a sudden you're working out SA Health's capabilities, you're having to get out of the entire state on board with this plan. What did you learn about engaging people? Oh, uh, 
communication and engagement is absolutely critical um, and uh, frank and transparent communications. Um, I, I firmly believe that most people have um, pretty good bullshit detectors and they know when they're being sold a pup and the best way to get around that is to tell the truth and be honest. When I say tell the truth, you, you, you're not compelled to answer every question, but when you do pass on information and you do answer questions, you should do so honestly and transparently. I can't, I can't undersell the value of good communications, communications with my workforce. We kept them informed to the point where they were probably feeling that they were being overwhelmed with information, but they needed to know what we were doing, what our expectations was of them and how they could remain safe when they were having to come to work every day. Well, and also going back to that very initial thing, you know, when the person in the uniform walks in the room, everybody's turning to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they were the font of knowledge. Yeah, and yeah, they needed to know the Mm. rules and we were were pretty explicit with the information we gave. I did regular, regular video blogs to the workforce so it was not just read this email. We were talking to people about what was happening and what they needed. But it's also the communication outside of SAPOL as well to the community, um, making sure that messaging was clear and consistent and that we established one source of truth. Because in a situation like that, whether it's a bushfire or a flood or a pandemic, a lot of people become experts, a lot of people share information and not all of it is accurate Mm -hmm. and it can be quite alarmist. So we wanted to be the one source of truth through the government website, SA Health, And we wanted to make sure the messages were timely and consistent. And I think that was absolutely critical in getting over the line on COVID. Did you change as a leader in the last two to three years or did you learn anything in that process that you now take into leadership roles? Um, I'm not sure I – I I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I'm I'm not sure I learned anything differently to what Mm -hmm. um, my approach had been beforehand. I I do believe – Good leaders are genuine and, as I said, communication is important. It's probably reinforced for me the the, the importance of good communications. But I'd have to say I've, I was, I've been privileged enough to be involved in a whole heap of training around emergency management and leadership stuff. So it's almost like all of these inputs come together at the time you need them to come together and that's what you rely on. So there's, it's not a... It's not a sort of a linear process where you go from one piece of learning to another to get through. It's It mm. sort of becomes a part of how you respond. So a big change, I suppose, has been the profile that comes with the position and that sort of extends to other policing responsibilities. Now the people – there's not too many places I go where people don't recognise me, so the ability to have a positive influence is something that's a takeaway from COVID-19. Do you wish you were anonymous again? Oh, no. Um, I have to say overwhelmingly the people who come up to me are incredibly positive. Um, A lot of people thank me for the work I did during COVID. I'm at pains to explain that it was a team effort. It's not just me. You've got to be careful all the time though, you know, no carrying on like an idiot in the pub. (laughs) (laughs) No more red wines for you. Let's not get too carried away. (laughs) You mentioned training and education. You completed the University of Adelaide's Transformative Leadership Program. Talk to me about what some of the skills and capabilities that that helps you develop or maybe Mm. solidify. Well, anyone who's done TLP, I think this will resonate with them, that the the single biggest takeaway, and it sounds like sort of, leadership program speak when you talk about 
getting up on the balcony and looking down on the dance floor, mm-hmm. but it, it's the single most – it's the one thing that's really stuck with me is – and it directly relates to how we manage COVID is trying to get up above the the frenzy that is happening on the floor and make informed decisions with a, the ability to see the bigger picture and mm-hmm. uh, you know, taking everything into into account that you should. So that's that's something that anyone who's done the program will, will have some sense of. It's fair to say I go into these sorts of leadership programs with a degree of scepticism. You know, a lot of them are, you know, a bit like an e- evangelic exercise where you, you go along and you drink the Kool-Aid and you become one of them. Or alternatively, there's no follow-up. There's no yeah. specific actions that you can then put into your day-to-day. Yeah, like, that's right. So, yeah. um, But this wasn't like that. I go in with a healthy degree of scepticism and yeah. TLP was one of those occasions where I've walked away. And I'll say this, I think I've said it recently to a, a group of current TLP people, is I, I can't put a finger on too many specific things that are a, a learning from the program, but I feel the learning had a big influence on how I act as a leader uh, in terms of listening to other people's stories, um, engaging with other people, working through the processes. Um, and I kept a journal for the time that I was with the Transformative Leadership Program. I was just highlighting things that I really wanted to be able to remember. So instead of having, mm. you know, 35 or 40 pages of scribblings, I was specifically highlighting things that I could just s- sort of scan through the book and pick up and, and reflect on. So it, it was a worthwhile exercise for me. How long ago did you do TLP or the Transformative Leadership Program? Um, 20 – it was just before I was commissioner. I think it was um, – uh, what, 2014? Or? Late 2014. Yeah. It was late 2014, so I was Deputy Commissioner. And what made you do it? Because obviously, you know, University of Adelaide, they do a, a yeah. lot of professional and continuing education. And um, So why this? What made you? Uh, the invitation. I think uh, SAPOL as a government agency was invited to um, yeah, have a senior executive participate in the program. And I suppose when that comes into the commissioner's office and the next person below is the deputy who gets mm-hmm. briefed on that, I probably stopped it from going any further and I thought, I'll do this one. So, <laughs> I'll take this, thanks yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I'm speculating there, but yeah, the, yeah. the invitation came into SAPOL as a government agency to have a representative on the program and it was offered to me. Yeah. And, and it, on reflection, uh, Gary as commissioner was probably looking at you know, ensuring that you know, I was given every opportunity to prepare myself for uh, the opportunity to to be commissioner, and there was not a done deal back then. Yeah. So, if I ask the same question of you after the TLP course, what do you think it means to be a leader? Do you think you would have had the same answer as before you sat it? Possibly, but my appreciation for the importance of those elements might be deeper now, mm-hmm. as a result of the program. So, what's next for you? I mean, we used to have lots of conversations about how you're desperate not to be state coordinated. You were ready to hand yeah, back the reins yeah. and that's obviously happened and we are now having to live with and alongside COVID. Oh, I still so- am the state coordinator and uh, depending on when people listen to this podcast, I'm now <laughs> grappling with um, the aftermath yeah. of a severe weather event that mm-hmm. saw the interconnector get taken out. So we're looking down the barrel of another possible blackout. Uh, having just recovered 165,000 homes from a, a blackout and we've got a flood event that's coming our way. The state coordinator role is with me every single day. It's not just something that happens when we have a, a, an emergency. So 
I'm still the coordinator, unfortunately. But COVID's COVID's not a big part of my day anymore. It, yeah. It's still important, but I'm I'm part of the emergency management committee now that deals with COVID and other strategic issues around emergency management. In terms of what's next for me, um, I don't know. I really really love what I do. I feel like there's more to be done. Um, in what ways? Well, COVID took over two years away from the strategic plan we had in place for you know, developing the organisation, implementing new ways of doing business, um, our IT programs, everything took a hit as a result of COVID. So we're, you know, we're getting back on track with that. I'd, I'd like to see more delivery on some of those things while I'm still in the chair as commissioner. Having said that, I'm mindful of the fact that renewal is a big part of an organisation staying progressive. So it's not just about me, it's about the organisation as well. One of your deputies might be stopping the invitations to uh, get to uh, the University of Adelaide's PACE programs. No, and <laughs> Yeah, I, I work really well with my deputy, um, yeah. Linda Williams. Um, we are a really good team. She's completely supportive. So um, yeah, I feel like I've got more to do just at this point in time. So I, I don't know about the future. Um, it's, a, it's a lot like my career. I've never set my goals too far ahead. Um, so I'm... I'm pretty excited to see what happens next, but I'm not ready for that just yet. When you look back at COVID response, when you look back at your policing career, do you sit with mistakes you've made well? Everybody makes mistakes, right? You said mistakes I made well. Well, well. My, my best mistakes. <laughs> well, no, just more making mistakes. Yeah. You know, during that COVID time, you, yeah. know, you were held up as you used the way forward, but then you were absolutely grilled and held to account. Making some people can make mistakes and live with that very well. Can you sit with that? Um, I do. I do. I, I do okay, and I'm the first to admit that I've made mistakes. It's the fool who doesn't learn from their mistakes. Yeah, if you're not making mistakes, then you could argue that you're not trying hard enough, and you're not you're not extending yourself as much as you possibly can. You're operating in a safe space, which I don't think delivers the outcomes you're looking for. So, it's one thing to make a mistake. It's it's another thing to make it twice. I, I honestly think I, when I recognise I've made a mistake, I do think about it. Mm. And, you know, you, you park that in your mind thinking, I'm not doing that again. You know, I understand what I did wrong. There's a better way to do things. Mm. Grant Stevens, before I let you go, because um, you were very, very fortunate to have your time, um, what have you learned from being a leader that you wish you knew? I mean, I want to say at the start of your career, but I wonder if there's also a different answer if I said that to you when you are in high school. Mm versus when you first started to feel like you're in a leadership position. So let's start with what would you say to yourself when you started out as, as to feel like you're a leader when you're in mm. the detective? What, what, what do you wish you knew then? That's a really hard question to answer. Um, I can answer it from a, from when I was in school. school. Yep. Uh, that I wish I'd known back then that a little bit of extra effort gives you far more options down the road and by taking the path of least resistance or, you know, going at three-quarter pace, you are cutting yourself off from opportunities that will never arise because of those decisions you made. So and I've, I've, I said this recently to a group of school kids I was talking to is, you know, you've got to have fun along the way but don't have fun at the expense of opportunities in the future. So that's probably something I wish I'd thought about or knew, known when I was – Going through my high school years, cruising through my high school years. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was lucky enough to find a pathway and you know, I often think about the fact that if I hadn't stumbled into police headquarters that day, and it was a matter of days, 
and I honestly don't know where I'd be or what I'd be doing. And if I hadn't found a, a, a something that sort of lit a fire in me and became a, a passion, and you, you really don't know. So um, as for leadership, I, I go back to what I started with is um, – being genuine, yeah, that's that's probably the most important aspect of leadership, I think. And I, I honestly do think people know when you're not being genuine, and your ability to provide strong leadership is substantially diminished if people don't have confidence in you or believe you as a leader. Mm-hmm. And so we come full circle. Police Commissioner Grant Stevens, I genuinely thank you for your service, but also thank you for your time. Thank you, Ali. Thanks for tuning in to Leveling Up, your leadership podcast. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow Pace at the University of Adelaide on LinkedIn for more on how you can take your career to new heights.